Race doesn't limit you from anything. It's all about I feel like they learn about race from, I teach them. You can even aspire about who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you are. love racial identity. This is In My Skin, a podcast about race and childhood. I'm Adam Flanagan. On the week of September 23rd, 1989, R&B singer Sybil charted on the Billboard 100 with her song, Don't Make Me Over. It's a remake of a Dionne Warwick hit from the 60s that was punched up to fit a new wave of 80s R&B. Don't make me over The music video features Sybil singing while the silhouettes of three young men breakdance behind a curtain. Like I said, 80s. There was a dove. It was a whole thing. It's not until the three minute mark though that you can make out a teenaged Frank Morrison, the only dancer not rocking a flat top. Today, Morrison is a prolific artist and illustrator. His work lives both in prestigious collections and on the pages of dozens of children's books. In his art, black characters are often portrayed with a certain musicality and rhythm that makes more sense after you watch the Sybil video. He's been honored three times with Coretta Scott King Awards, most recently for illustrating the 2018 book Let the Children March, which tells the story of the 1963 Birmingham Children's Crusade. His other books include Little Melba and Her Big Trombone, about pioneering jazz musician Melba Liston, and I Got the Rhythm, which shows a young girl embracing the rhythm of the city. His books are a shining example of what positive racial identity looks like in a children's book. Morrison moved from Boston to New Jersey as a child, and he was one of the only African Americans in his Catholic school. We talked about how African American culture influences his work, and about his formative experiences, like visiting the Louvre in Paris. But first, we talked about his earliest memory of race. My first experience with race, I would have to say, fourth grade. Uh, I had moved from Massachusetts to New Jersey and I was my mother put uh put my brother and I in um was sent to my brother and I in a private school. There was a St. Paul's uh, uh Catholic school and I realized that I was the only African American in the class. And um and it wasn't until I had a, a friend of mine that came in that was a young kid uh, he was the second African-American in class. And so um, that was my first time dealing with race. So out of class of maybe 25 children, I was just the only African-American in it. What was it like then being that first, being one, the only African-American in your class? Well, it was kind of awkward because when, uh, let's say, I, I don't know if it was like two weeks into the new school year, Bruce McDonald was his name. He came into the class. And we clicked. And before that, and so he's the only friend I remember through those years is that guy. Um, there was, and believe it or not, I was 10, I mean, I was one of uh, 20 kids, and he's the only kid I remember. Him and another girl, uh, there was a, excuse me, there was a, we don't want another uh, African American girl came to the classroom. Right? Uh, and then uh, we all, three of us, tended to, I guess, uh, hang together. Uh, up at that point, I was pretty much a loner. 
how did that compare to your uh, life away from school? Like, where did you have strong African-American people in your life when they're outside of the classroom? Well, I, my mother um, uh, was, was a positive role model. Um, uh, then I had my, my father, James, my stepfather, uh, became a very positive role model in my, in my life. He um, came in and he taught us things that, um, uh, that, you know, he came in and was just a great father to us. Karate and things like that. You know, we grew up in the '80s, so it was a little different. We grew up through hip hop, mm-hmm. so it was kind of um, yeah. So it was so you know the influences then were you know it was weird because we listened to pop music, the Donna that came over, we listened to Wham, we listened to everybody. But you know when hip hop came through, uh, it kind of really took over the sound wave for us. So we started listening more to the beats and rhymes of hip hop and rap at that point. But um, for positive images, what we would, what we, my my father and my mother would make sure we'd watch um, every, you know, it didn't necessarily just come on in February, but it would come on periodically through the year. There was a TV show, a program that was called Eyes on the Prize. And that kind of let me realize where I stood in America as as a child and what my parents and grandparents went through. How so? When we go back to when my, um, now in hindsight, looking at uh, when I went to private school, I looked at the, uh, the schools that were, you know, that were in my neighborhood. And this was the best choice for my, my mother to send me to the private school uh, because it was a better education. I would get a better education in the private school. And so what ended up happening was that though she could afford it, other African-Americans couldn't afford it. And so what ends up happening is now you have uh, I would have to say classification in a sense. Mm-hmm. So the opportunities came to the people that could afford the uh, to send their children to private school. And so you know, it's just. And so what I've seen is that when I was there, it was more. It was I was more of the minority in a sense. I was just one of two, you know. And then when we moved, then I then when I went to public school, I was the minority in a sense. I was a minority, um, I think it was. And so I learned then that, um, you know, we would get teased and sometimes it would tell you, you know, call you by your color when you were in school and things like that. But I was a, I was a fighter. So not too many kids picked on me, <laughs> but, um, but that was, that was when, uh, that was just in, you know, third and fourth grade. Um, we went to public school in the, I went to public school in the fifth grade. During so during you mentioned hip hop as uh and rap as it influences what who who were you listening to what who were the artists that uh kind of spoke to you the during those early formative years? Now this is a, this is a significance to rap and what it played in the hip hop culture. In the beginning, we had groups like Run DMC and and then it, and um you know that were just speaking and then Grandmaster Flash was like the deepest rapper at that point because he was talking about the community mm-hmm. where he was talking about um you know in the serious side they were talking about what was happening in b street you know uh what was going on and they were talking about white lines about doing drugs and so it was like a public announcement that was going out over the airway um that we could hear and almost i was just looking at a, a something on the warriors the movie the warriors and it was like they would put these codes out there for the public you know if you were on the run you you go here he's a safe house here and look out for this person here. And that's what it was with hip hop in the beginning. It was awareness that we didn't know about because we weren't being taught this in high school and in history. 
you know, uh, we want to talk about our leaders or African-American leaders in, in their history class. And if they were, it was just basically that one, two paragraphs about Martin Luther King on Black History Month or a ditto that we might get, a ditto, right? Back mm-hmm. in the day, a ditto that we might receive or a coloring book, we might have to color Martin Luther King in that, that week or something like that. And so hip hop was actually my second source of, uh, of uh, African-American culture. And so the groups that um that were beginning, I was caught up into the of course the you know the Jazzy Jeff. It was great because you had all kind of layers of hip hop. You had the, the young comedy, you had the, the 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 street like the hardcore, like the rap, and then you had the educational. So you had a uh, public enemy that came through, and then you had my philosophy with KRS One, and then you started learning from their those songs what your history was and put a curiosity in you and that you did not get from your parents at that point because you know you were or you know they may not have had that history book available to tell the children about this other than the story of how they made it here from the south but this gave you more we learned about the pyramids we learned about uh different artists and and african-american history through um those at that point through those uh, artists or those rap artists so you mentioned, I mean, obviously hip hop and uh, rap played a clear uh, influence on you. Uh, and those, I mean, I feel hip hop's like one of the true, great, purely American art forms. And and I think, and, and then you you went on to uh, get into graffiti art as well as break dancing, both other two mm-hmm. other great forms of art pioneered by African Americans. So how so how important was having these African-American traditions as something as part of your childhood? It was very important. You know, which, when I think about hip-hop and graffiti, and yes, we, we um, it was weird because when that, when my neighborhood, my box, I live in much, it was, it was all African, it was predominantly African-American. We had one kid that was white that lived in, that, that hung out with it. And, um, and so we, you know, but we were pretty much we didn't look at him as a, a, any different. He was just one of the kids we hung out with, you know. And um, so, but growing up knowing your history, growing up knowing your history, knowing what you see the importance of seeing the people that have made it. So it gives you an anchor to go back on. So you can look back and say, well, this guy made it through, or that guy made it through. There is a possibility. Um, and hip hop gave us a gave us a chance to see those historical figures, uh, and then dance to them at the same time. Uh, there was artists that came out that were writers um, that were that in the beginning that were like phase two and these cats that did graffiti that we, we looked up to as well. Um, and it just let you know that there was another person out there that could do this and they were great at it. And it wasn't it just Hanna Barbarian that or excuse me, the kids, from, the cats from Marvel that could draw well. You could actually see someone that was African-American that can draw well. So it, so it started building your um, structure for you to be able to to build, uh, to, to to paint, to help me be able to paint and see all nationalities that were that were just good at it, not just me. Um, because, it, like I said, it's kind of it's, when I get into these stories with my friends, it's, we look at how we were broken apart from uh, as, in, in slavery, and so even when the Jim Crow laws came about, when we were free, we still weren't able to work in our craft. So we look at artists. That made, that these painters that now are just picking cotton, we're looking at craftsmen that are now just just being housemaids, 
you know, or these people that have opportunities and have talent, they're not able to achieve them. And then that goes on from one generation to the next. So you're free, but now you can't work in your class. Now you go into the, the 1800s and now you're in the 1900s and you're dealing with, uh, you know, you're dealing with the still segregation. Still seg- so you're still not able to uh, achieve everything you wanted to achieve. So now you have, but with other nationalities, they have generations of artists that can come up. The Wyatt family, you know, they have generations, important generations of artists that came out of that family. And it was a magnificent family of artists. And But when the African-American we, I, I might start my lineage now. My sons and daughters can draw and paint. And they'll be able to see me as an artist. And their dad now has made it as an artist. And I built that off of my grandfather, who was an architect. And my, grand, my mother could draw. And, but they never perceived their craft of art. Uh, my, my dad, my grandfather did have a contracting business, but he didn't build. He was an architect. But he did help build my house that we grew up in. So now my children can just now start seeing the fruits of the labor of my family or the talent of my family, where other nationalities, they did not have, you know, the, I'm not saying it's not hard to make it in life, but you put slavery and, and uh, Jim Crow and, and segregation, it's a lot harder. And then you have the black exploitations that come out that make it, that makes it seem like we only look and act a particular way. So we shouldn't be looked upon as uh, somebody that, can be fruitful in the art. So when you get into uh, art, how how conscious are you of this kind of uh, what you kind of described uh, as the as having to uh, have to pursue your art as partly for yourself, but also partly for the people that who came before you that weren't able to pursue this? How conscious were you of that being part of that being a driving part of your pursuit? as you be uh, got into being an artist? Every day. I, I don't, it started, it's weird because I, it's weird. when I started doing graffiti and when I was in high school, uh, my friends that did graffiti were white. <laughs> they were Italian. Okay. And they lived in New York and they were the best writers. And so I could not look at, at art. It was weird because I grew up in my pocket and there was only one white kid that was there and, and he was cool, and we hung out with him. And but he was just cool, you know. But when I looked at my the kids that could do graffiti better than me, they weren't African American. And so it kind of leveled me out, where I understood that yes, be proud of your culture, but you still have to appreciate all cultures as well as yourself, as well as yours. And I think it's better to show a di- diversity. Uh, when, when you look at art, it's better to be diverse in a sense, because if you don't, you can lose something. Mm-hmm. You, you can lose out on something. If I'm, if I'm racist, I can look at a guy and I say, oh, he's white or he's Chinese. I don't like his art, but he may be something I need. He may, he may, he may have something I need to learn, or he may give me a technique that could open up another door for myself. So you couldn't take those stereotypes, but you did take your pride with you. You did take your pride and you knew that this could be accomplished. So, um, the, what the question is, the question is, even when I paint, uh, when I started painting and I realized that I had a career in the art, I made sure that I studied every African-American artist that I knew at that moment. And I, and then I made sure that I also studied the other artists that were, that weren't African-American. So my style is derived from the Ashcan school, which is, which was all white. 
uh, George Bellows and 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 um and the, uh, Edward Harper and those cats that came out that time. And then uh, it also is a, a, another style that came about that is called the um the regionalist. So I have Thomas Hart Benton. So you can't paint in mannerism if you don't appreciate these artists. And so, but then I had to go and look at my Harlem Renaissance. But the difference is, is now when I go to look at my African-American artists that I want to look towards the style, I'm limited. You know, there's a limited vocabulary or a limited library about what artists were at that time where, you know, it just seems like a WPA art, um, when WPA came about, everybody was accepted, but there was very few. There was only like a handful of African-Americans that was accepted to paint these murals. But I did study them as well. And I took all that and I just helped, and that helped me develop the style that I'm in now. So going back to your kind of the beginning of your art uh, career, I know that your breakdancing actually brought you to Paris. And while there, you were actually able to have one of your formative experiences at the Louvre. So I'm wondering if you could describe mm-hmm. what that experience at the Louvre was like and how that impacted you. Before I was able to throw off names like Tom Benton and Titian, these artists, I don't think I could tell you it was Lee. I could tell you Q. I could tell you a lot of the writers from around my way. Uh, I was just, I was heavily influenced by graffiti at that point, you know, and that's all I really concerned myself with. I had um, a horrible experience when I was in the fourth grade. Um, it was probably the fifth grade where I went ahead of the class and I decided that I was going to go and we were doing a, a project on perspective. And I went ahead of the class and drew the, the trees. I drew the, the cars. I drew everything. And the teacher told me when I brought it in the next day that I, you know, she gave me like a C on it. She said, you didn't follow instructions. You were only supposed to draw the buildings. And from that day forward, I was looking, I never really wanted to paint. I, would, I, didn't, I, didn't, I had no interest in, in fine art or art classes. Like, so that was just something I did when I was home. I would just do graffiti instead of, I substituted art classes for graffiti and uh, drawing caricatures and, and smurfs around letters. And that's something I did. And I didn't really find an interest in art again until I was in high school. And it wasn't until that time I was in high school that I had my second African-American teacher and her name was Mrs. Moore. And at that time I was, I had uh, picked up, I stopped breakdancing and started club dancing and we ended up dancing for a lady named Sybil. And that's how we ended up going on tour and we found out we were going to go to Paris. The thing was, I had to ask all my teachers whether or not I could go because it was it was uh, around the holidays, the Christmas holidays, and I would be going. I would be leaving school for a week. And it was a week before we went on going to recess or holiday recess, and so my only teacher that would gave me homework was my art teacher, and I pleaded to Mrs. Moore. I said, "We can't even bring book bags on the or <laughs> on the plane." You know, I tried everything to get out of the homework assignment, and lo and behold, it was, I had to go to the Louvre. And I was like, are you kidding me? Said, what is that? I've never been to a museum before. And so she made sure that she let my mother, Sybil, my uh, everyone knew. My pr- principal, that was my one homework assignment that I had to go to the Louvre. And up until that point, I, like I said before, I'd never been to an art gallery. Go to New York, I would see trains and buildings and you know, that's where was my gallery in the street, the trains and you know, New York City, the landscape. And then I get to Paris and it's this 
you know, we go and we do a couple of shows and um, a couple of TV shows. And I'm hoping that it's Wednesday and now you get there on Monday and I'm hoping Sybil forgot. And next thing you know, she's like, oh, we have a day off. Go to the Louvre. I'm like, what the heck? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> we go off. My dance partner and I go off. And here we have these high top fades. And we're walking with these shiny, you know, the baggy, extra baggy pants at that point. It wasn't even baggy. These were the sacks we were wearing. <laughs> and and uh, Reeboks and the kids were walking around Paris. And we, we have to look like performers because everybody's walking up to us and they're touching our hair. They're asking us questions. We speak no French whatsoever. Uh, and so we started asking for directions. And I don't know how we ended up at the loop. And uh, I asked him when we saw the building, I was like, we're not going to church. <laughs> <laughs> so we go into the door. And my my whole assignment was I had to find out this one artist. And it was as uh, it was an artist that was, I, till today, I have no idea. I just know it was a painting of an African-American woman. And I had to find it in the museum. And so I'm thinking, you know, tell my, my partner, I say, hey, man, um, I'll be right back. You don't have to go in here with me. I'll be right back. And be like, give me like five minutes. And I, I didn't, you know, how long does it take to walk the loop? <laughs> Three days? <laughs> it's a bit of a needle in a haystack scenario. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I and so he was smart enough or scared. And he was like, Fred, let me go with you. And we walked through the doors. And my God, I saw paintings of liberty. I saw paintings that were just, that were that were the size of my school, it seemed like. It was just, they were huge. I've never seen anything like that in my life. And I walked down the aisles of the Louvre, the, the halls of the Louvre, and then each step changed my life. Each step changed my life. And so by the time we got to past King Tut and got around the corner to where we stood in line to find that this line we're in, that's like 15, 20 minutes long, we're thinking we're going to get something to eat at the end of it. And it's the Mona Lisa. And I said, are you kidding me? We're, we're just, I'm just blown away. And so at the end of that experience, for some reason, I found it was Charles Schwartz was in there. I don't know what, how Peanuts got in there, I don't know. But either way, um, I just, it just totally changed my, my life when it came to my artistic life. And, I've, and I came back to the state, and I was thrown into wanting to go to art galleries and doing more research on the artists that I've seen at the Louvre. And once again, you look at the Louvre and you look at that experience. You look at that experience and then if I was racist and I go into the Louvre, I would, and just looking for African-American work, I would just find myself in, in tech, antiquities. Or in, that would be it. But I had to appreciate everything. But it just leads me to this thing is, where was the African-American artist at that point? Mm-hmm. What could we have contributed to the Louvre at that point? You know, it, 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 to that, I think Henry Osana Tanner was one of the first artists to get uh, picked in the salon. I'll I, I check the history. But where were we at at that point? And so as I move forward as an artist, I want to be able to, his, to document the history of our lives today from my perspective and what I see in our mannerisms. And that's where I, I want to make sure whether I make it or not, you know, whether it be through children's books or through fine art, 
I want to make sure that when a child opens up a book, they are able to see themselves by someone that painted them, that was like them. So where, when did you get that? When did you start tra- um, doing work in uh, children's books? Children's books came about after I graduated from high school. I signed a, a, a contract with Essence, and I stayed with them for 10 years. And I was doing lithographs with Essence. And I was like, eight out of 10 years, I was their number one seller. And then these artists came through that I knew of, um, Brian Collier. He came through. And then this other guy came through, his name was Kadir Nelson. Mm-hmm. These two artists came through and they were different because they one did collage and one did this totally fine, uh, this really clean mannerism work. And so I was, I was very, uh, you know, so I was, you know, I was friends with those guys and they left out of the blue. They left and they went into the picture book world. And I said, okay, wow. And I started, I picked up, at that time I was married and I had my children. So I started reading picture books to my children and they came across their works. And I said, okay, we bought them and started reading them to my children. And I said, we know it'd be nice if I did a picture book. And so I went out and I thought I could get a picture book there. I said, honey, I'll be right back. I took off of work. I was at JJ King. I was working on Wall Street. I said, I'm going to take off and go get a picture book deal. And I went to every publishing house. I went to meet seven or eight of them in Manhattan. And one by one, those letters came back. No, never. <laughs> All these rejection letters came back. And it wasn't until I went, it was weird because at that point I built up um, a lot of collectors and a lot of friendships through my fine art. Uh, and I had some people at Essence that pulled me in and they gave me a lecture. Uh, and they let me know exactly what to do as an artist and what to put to put forth and the pride and dignity that goes into picture books because you're going to be influencing another generation. At that point, I didn't realize the importance of picture books. Uh, I just thought it was a, a gig, you know. And then when I got the respect of the, the picture book world, believe it or not, it's almost as if, I mean, I believe in God, but it was almost like out of nowhere and God just gave me a deal. And it was the first deal, and it was one of the publishing houses that I didn't go to. It was called, it was uh, Lee and Low Books. And then another book publisher called, it was uh, FSG Books. And they both called, there was the two publishing houses I didn't go to. And I asked them, how'd y'all know about me? They just said, we found you on the internet. And those were my first two, that was my first deal. In the, and um, my first picture book won the Coretta Scott King Award. That's a good way to start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... So when you think back to your own childhood, did you, were there books or, uh, aside from, I know we talked about some of the, the musical and TV influences, but were there any books that, um, you saw that maybe, uh, had characters that looked like you or were written by people that you looked like you were share or reflected your own life experience that you remember? No, no. My first time seeing African-American and illustration was through Nicholas Cage and Marvel. We didn't have Ezra Jack Keats at that point. My mom didn't have those books for us. Mm-hmm. So I didn't grow up. I do, I do remember seeing um, Snow Day, but the one that stands out the most was Nicholas Cage. Yeah. The, so when you're creating art then, like whether it's, uh, whether, I guess whether, is there a difference whenever you think about 
the audience of who you're creating art for, whether it's some, a, a fine art piece, whether going back to your graffiti days, going back to uh, or a children's book, like, like how do you how does the potential audience, does that affect your the how you produce the kind of art that you produce? Yeah, yeah. When I when I illustrate picture books, I make sure that I have them as diverse as possible. <laughs> That's what I do. I I can't sit here and complain about not seeing myself and I'm not including everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I want to make sure that every child, when you go into that classroom, they can see themselves in their book. That it's not, you know, that it's not someone on the side or, you know, they're a part of the main character. I'm doing a book now. It's, um, it's about a child going back to school. And um, you know, the first day of school, I made sure that classroom has everyone in it so we can all sit there and enjoy the book. You know, I, I, I look at cartoons now and I, and it's just, it, I, it just gets so irritating not seeing African-Americans or, or any other nationality other than white in these cartoons. And my child uh, watches these things and they're like, they're, they're cheering but there's no one there that they can literally look up to other than other than some other nationality, which I think is very unfair. It's, um, you know, I think it's just, I think it's very unfair. It's just, you know, we, we, we have, we live in America. There's a melting pot. We should represent everybody. And so when I paint, I make sure I include everyone. And then when I'm painting for, if I'm doing um, editorial work, I try to make the, I make that proud African-American and I put them on that cover because what happens then is now other African-Americans can see themselves and see that is achievable. See that they can, they too are important. So I think it's very important for us to, for myself to be able to reflect uh, images of African-Americans as much as possible in places that they never would have been before. But my art is able to open up that door, that door and put it there. Because now when that child opens up that book or sees that cover of that magazine or uh, looks in that history book, they can be just as amazed as I was when I went to the doors of the Louvre and then seeing themselves as well and see somebody that painted and that was their color or, or came from where they came from. I've noticed that diversity in looking through your uh, books and it's a diversity because I think that there there's a there's some books that depict African American characters, some children's books, but that might have kind of everybody has the same kind of brown skin tone in the book. There's a great image at the end of Quickest Kid in Clarksville, where there's four uh, girls with their arms wrapped around each other, and I just was looking at that image and it was like there's all each all four of these girls have four different kind of skin tones and maybe it's a little different here and a little bit different there, but how, I guess it seems like that's a, a very intentional choice on your part to kind of make it so that not only are different people look, but different, different skin tones within the African-American community are also represented. Yeah, you have to. There's no universal character of a black kid. We all, we're all different. We all, we all, and so I try to represent everything. When, when you look in a book, you can appreciate seeing yourself. I love when children say, that's my hairdo or that's me. I love it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's what it's about. I'm doing a book on basketball right now. And it's, um, and you know, it's predominantly, it's going to be a masculine book, you know, but I threw these little girls in here as many times as I could. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just threw them in the page because now a girl can look in this book and say, oh, that's me. Well, I like this book. I'm here. 
I can see myself in it. And that's what it's about, inclusion, is being included. And segregation was wonderful if you were rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was wonderful if you were rich at that point. I mean, you, you could run it. You could do everything you want. You could be anything you want. And then you can just say that pocket of people that don't have the same opportunities, I'll never have to worry about them competing. I'll never have to worry about them competing against my daughters, against my sons, because they live in a world where none of these, where there's no opportunities. We're going to redline their communities. They're not going to be able to get loans. They won't be able to see themselves in business. They won't be able to open up any banks. Won't be able to do anything. They'll be able to, we'll basically put our stores that we want them to to have the liquor stores, the Chinese stores, to give them the high blood pressure, we'll give them the, the alcohol, we'll put the drugs in the community and let them thrive. While I'll send my kids to great schools and they can graduate and they can be anything they want. And so what ends up happening is that when I see that as an artist, I'm trying to let these children know, and I'm not the most prolific. I mean, I mean, when I talk, I may not, I didn't graduate from Yale or anything like that. So I do have friends that have graduated from prestigious colleges. But my part is that I need to speak to the children that may not get that opportunity or they may be in the in bad areas to let them see that. Like I go out to these school visits and I'm in the worst neighborhoods ever. But I don't mind because I have to let these kids realize there are opportunities because though we are not in a segregation environment now, but we are segregated and what we difference now is called classism. What we difference is we have rich and poor. And I'm here to let the children know in the poor neighborhoods that they can become something. They can become an artist. They can become anything they want. I did it. And so they can see me and they can go out and they can make it happen for themselves. So it's very important to show them uh, images of dignity so they can grow up and realize they're important. You are a father of five, and I'm wondering how well that has, uh, how being a father has um, driven that message, and how if that is that something, if this is a message that you kind of you've been all passionate about for a while, or is something that might have uh, been stoked more by having uh, becoming a father yourself? Oh, being a father changes everything. Mm-hmm. Now you have a when you become a parent, become a father. You, I'm married for 28 years. And um, I have five children, and, and each one of them, you know, you want to raise them the right way. They want to give them opportunity to see everything that's out there. And um, so, though I did let them, it's I make sure they're image conscious. They know what's happening out there. My, I used to tell my sons all the time that we live in the South now. Be careful. Because, you know, some of these white people out here don't like you. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Some of them like you, some of them don't. Be careful. Now, I, being that I grew up uh, looking at, uh, grew up with eyes on the prize, and I, and I had some uh, racist things happen to me growing up, I know about these things. And I can tell them beware of it. Just like if a child is crossing the street, you know, you look both ways. It doesn't matter what street that is. You look both ways. Racism exists in the South. You have to look both ways, and I show them both ways to look, and they, they listen to that, Dad. Yeah, okay. And then one day, they're at a mall. They're at this wonderful mall, it's called, and the uppity mall in the South, it's called, um, it's not Lennox, it's the mall, mall next to it, Pitch Plaza. And next thing you know, a guy comes up to them and accuses them of robbing him. 
and he pulls his wallet up. This white guy pulls his wallet out and puts it in front of him and said, take it. You guys are trying to rob me anyway. Just take it. And they were traumatized. And thank God I, they knew not to touch that man's wallet, but they looked around and every day were only, there was only two black people with them. I mean, and so it was just, there's just only three of them. And the cashier, they looked to the cashier to get help. He wouldn't help them. They looked to the people behind them. They were standing back like they were trying to rob them. Everyone turned on them in a matter of a minute. And they didn't know what to do. So they just walked out the mall. And if they would have touched that man's wallet, we probably wouldn't be on the phone right now. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I teach my children to beware of what's out there. The same way you would tell someone to beware of uh, if you, you know, if you swim in the ocean, beware of sharks. <laughs> I was not like mm-hmm. the chance of you getting bit by a shark is, you know, if you go deep enough, you might, but just beware, you know, don't, don't eat and then swim. Uh, but at the same time, my kids are skaters, they skateboard. Mm-hmm. And so within the, so we have every nationality that comes to my house. We have, Every nationality. Some guy, some guy came in from from Dubai and was they stayed, stayed stayed with us for a week. So we have white, black, we have Chinese, we have my son was just on tour with uh, Little Wayne, and uh, and they and their whole the skating community is diverse. There is no one nationality that dominates it. It's actually you know it's not as many African Americans skating, but my kids were able to just like how I did through the arts show a community that did not have that there was another option out there other than hanging on the corner or playing basketball or being bad if you do have the energy and you can skate there's skate parks so you can get away from that and that's what it's about art took me away from a pocket of poverty that i would have been stuck in i look at my friends that i grew up with and the people that did not use their talent and these guys aren't doing well at all and if it wasn't for art I wouldn't be able to, I don't know where I would be at. Uh, the kids that I hung around with weren't doing the nicest things. They were bad. And so it wasn't until I found art and I realized that there's a bigger picture. It changed me. And so that's what I want my children to do. And that's what they, that's what they go out and they're best friends with everybody. It's no one particular race. We don't look at race. We look at friendships for who they are. Uh, because we realize that that's if you think small-minded like that in America, you'll be lost. Can you just going back to the actual process of the illustration? Can you walk me through what, how you determine, for instance, uh, the different skin tones of a ch- of children, or how you determine uh, hairstyles, or how uh, or what actions or what things are going to look? How do you? How do you determine uh, that uh, in a given book? Oh gosh, well, it depends on this. The um, well, I just I just make sure I include everyone. Mm-hmm. I just include everyone. So it's very, I go. I have a, a tons of sketches and images that I go I go through when I'm building a character. I do realize that most um, African American children have these little power puffs, which actually you know. So I paint them with their little puffs. And the hair are natural. So I paint really natural hair because I know that in the African-American community, that's a sign of strength. And so you're natural, so it's a natural beauty. They have their nice strength in their hair. And hold on, so I paint that a lot um, to be proud of that because, you know, everybody didn't have long, wavy hair. So I make sure I put these little apple pokes on these little girls so it can be a universal image. But I just make sure I paint what's current. 
I'm working on a project now where I have to paint, um, draw caricatures for, for something, but I have to go out and look at everything. So I look at what's current and what's really happening at that time. And then I make sure I, I, I'm true to that date that I'm working at. So I want to, so I want to just, uh, get you out of here on this. I, I'm wondering how the, uh, what, what the satisfaction is for you as an artist? Like how, how is it different, uh, creating art for a children's book versus, uh, graffiti art versus, uh, fine art that you might hang in a gallery? Like how, what is, what is that? How does that exercise different kind of Here's a difference? Okay. Here's a difference. Um, when I paint for children's books, I want to paint, <clears throat> I'm a graffiti artist and I'm a fine artist and I'm an illustrator. I'm over that. And I want to make sure that I reach a graffiti artist when I illustrate my picture books. I want to meet, reach the children that could be fine artists. And I want to meet the children that want to do illustration and let them see all three of them in confidence in what I do. Then I also want to make sure when I do, when I put graffiti in my books that other writers realize there's other opportunities out there for them through illustration or through the arts. And so if they see me doing it, now they can see us themselves doing it. Because a lot of times, writers only deal with letters, but these guys that could be doing fonts for companies and corporations. These guys could be working, some of these guys are colorists that could be doing color schemes for movies. Let them see that there's opportunities in the arts. So each, everything I paint for the illustration is a beacon for that child to see that this is an opportunity. This is a chance. This guy does graffiti, but yet he still can do his fine art. He can still paint me exactly the way I look. He can make me mannerific. He can do everything. So that's what I look at when it comes to, and I make sure that it's diverse with a touch of diversity in there too. So we can make sure we, it's not just singling out one nationality. We all can do this. Let's all get in there because we don't know where that talent might come from. We don't know what, who's going to influence us. You know, so, um, but then with my fine art is different. My fine art, I'm on a mission and I paint for sport. And I feel as though African-Americans and art, that's really like the, it has never been desegregated. That's how I see it. When I go to museums and I go inside these museums, I, I, I really, you get a chance every once in a while, every 40 or 50 paintings, you might see one African-American. Even at the High Museum, <laughs> you know, you, you don't see as many African-Americans in it. And so when I look at museums and I see what I do and I, and I've, I, try to, I try to paint so I can get into those museums so I can make a difference or at least influence another artist to realize that we can actually be in those doors so they, so all of us can be appreciated in art history. And so we can make it, so we can shut, so we can open the doors up. I look at when they, when I do graffiti and I look at the artists that represent graffiti artists now and represent that whole genre. When I see this whole thing that's happening is urban restoration. I rarely see African-Americans participating in this. And if I do, it's at a level that's so minuscule <laughs> that you couldn't even them, they was even they even exist, but yet you have other artists with opportunities that aren't African American that can borrow from these artists that are on their way up and become anything they want. You, you, we've been putting tags on walls forever, but who else is bigger than Obey? You know, Chet mm -hmm. Bafari, 
where's the where's the counterpart to that as an African American? And so I see, you know, we have a guy that came up this following through these guys, and his name is Brainwash. And who else is comparable to Brainwash on that level? Who, whatever artist, if I want to say, okay, if I'm teaching my sons about art history, right, current art history right now, and I take them and I show them African American artists at this point in time, in this period, and with this style and this style, and I go up to 19 or 2015 or 2019, and I want to show them artists that has established in the fine art movement of all nationalities, I can only, I, who else can compare? I think it's, it's sad that the people that originated this style were kids that came out of the poverty that could not afford to go. And this is what they had to do. This is what they did to, to create. And now it's taken off in 2020 and in 2000, I forgot when the style, style was picked up. But I'm sure it's been going on for over 10 years now. And then there's very little African-American, if any, that are on the same level of the rest of these artists. And so that's my mission. I'm African-American. I can paint graffiti. I do. I can do mannerism. I do all this and that. So I have no other choice but to try to paint to get my work in the highest buildings as possible. And whether by museums or Smithsonian or wherever, I want to show that this, what I do now, matters. I, how I see life and art matters and should be documented through museums. All right, Frank, thank you so much for talking to me today and for providing so much diversity and so many different uh, perspectives into uh, your work, especially for the work we do here with Pride with uh, children. Thank you. Thank you, man. You can find a selection of Frank's books on our website, racepride.pit.edu and anywhere children's books are sold. You can follow Frank on social media at Frank Morrison. In My Skin is a production of the University of Pittsburgh Pride Program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development in Early Education. Pride is part of Pitt's Office of Child Development. This episode was produced by myself, Adam Flango, as well as Pride Director Aisha White and Director of Engagement Medina Jackson. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. And of course, Sybil. Make sure to subscribe to In My Skin on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a rating while you're there. We'll have new episodes coming every Thursday, and you can find every episode at racepride.pit.edu.